Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek with Michael Carlino again. Michael, you're a regular now. Yeah, actually, was this five or six times, so glad to be back. Welcome back. I was talking with another guest. They were listening to one of my episodes. They said, the guy who's giving up the smartphone. So you've inspired someone else to go for... I forget if he's going to stop with the smartphone at all or go for a simple one like yours. Great. Okay. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, it's a good experience. It continues to be, yeah, just having a less distraction and uh, more focused time has been really good for me. So Through deliberate choice, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things I've been studying and reading recently for some of my classes is related to how we as humans are uh, shaped by our habits, not just our beliefs. So, you know, a lot of us would say or almost treat humanity, treat ourselves like we're a computer. You just, you know, put the right code in, you put the right belief system or the right code of beliefs, and all of a sudden now we'll start doing those things. But the reality is, if we're not actively following through, like I think most of us, very practical example would say this is true with like the gym. You might think it's really good to work out, but if you're not regularly going to the gym, you'll start to actually see the gym as a threat and not a good thing. But if you're consistently at the gym, if you're consistently working out, you'll see its benefits more so. And so in the same way, making a deliberate choice to give up a smartphone or other things like that is actually going to shape your virtue and instill in you the desire to keep doing it. Because if you choose something, it will either reinforce what you see as good or it will strengthen another belief that you have and change your conviction. So something I've been thinking through and reading through recently and been really enjoying that thought process. So I want to get to where we were last time when we left off, but I want to comment on that. That I was trying to remember the Aristotle quote. I bet you know it about habits and excellence. Do you know it? So I've recently been reading him. I'm not sure the exact quote you're thinking of, but yeah, he does talk about habitual excellence quite a bit. You know, Greek philosophy is really focused on virtue ethics. The idea of, yeah, it's interesting. A lot of them almost talked about habits as though they're a liturgy, which is a you know more church or religious term. And, and liturgy speaks to like the ordering of a church worship service in most contexts. But they would often use that word in times past to speak of one's life to like forming and ordering our life in such a way that it instills excellence and discipline and things like that. So a lot of people talk to me about, you know, what you do doesn't matter. What one person does doesn't matter. And it's hard for me to get this across. I don't think people understand that the reason I live by my values I'm happy if it influences other people. Mm -hmm. But if I don't do it, I don't know what I'm talking about. The challenge of, say, not flying or not Mm -hmm. buying packaged, I don't call it food, doof. The challenge isn't not getting on an airplane. Anyone can do that. The challenge is, but your mom is on the other coast and she's not well. What do you do in that situation? The challenge is your friends say, you know, oh, you should do it. Mm -hmm. How do you handle those things? That's what happens when you do it. And anyone who doesn't do it and tells other people to do what they're not doing, they're basically telling the other people to tell other people what to do without themselves doing it either. Yeah. Which kind of describes large segments of our society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's hypocritical. Yeah. Also, I noticed that last time you said a word, this time you said discipline, but last time you said discipline, which I don't know if it was on purpose or accidental, but when you said it, I remarked on it and thought that's an interesting take. Was it intentional before? Have you intentionally said discipline to call it the word disciple within it? Yeah, so I think that there are connections. So interestingly, discipline, to give some Bible background to it, there's a text in First Timothy in the Bible where it says to discipline yourself for godliness. And the word discipline there 
is that it comes from the a Greek word humnasia, which is where we get gymnasium and things like that from. So the word discipline comes from the idea of exercise or taking mastery of your body or control or things like that. Disciple has more to do with following a teacher or things like that. But when you follow a teacher, you're being trained and taught things in a similar way to how you'd be, you know, trained in a gym and things like that. So when I talk about discipling, I'm talking about like as a Christian disciple, especially as a follower of Jesus, disciple has to do with those who follow him and listen to him. And it's very closely connected to discipline, especially in its original context that dealt with how parents would raise and both discipline and disciple their children, how in discipline, they're forming habits and virtues in them and trying to show them the good and the bad and helping them choose the good. But then there's also discipleship, which is more formative in nature. It's not as punitive, we could say, whereas discipleship is more, we could say, positive training and teaching that would instill the values that they're hoping their kids follow. So I intentionally try to use both of those terms to capture both the formative good and that we're pursuing, but then also the negative thing that we're, you know, we're putting off laziness or something like that, that you're seeking to move on from. I'm glad I asked. And I feel like sages throughout history have remarked on the value of discipline. And I strong, I mean, anyone knows about me and my burpees and all the all that <laughs> stuff, know that discipline is a big part of my life. It feels like it's less important now in mainstream society than it used to be. I'm not, maybe that's one of the reasons why people promote it is that it's not so common in any age. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Like right now, I would say we live in an era that we are so heavily influenced by humanism and also hedonism, the idea of pleasure. Like we are very, very far removed from Greek, like stoic thought or the idea of monasticism of old, of like punishing your body in such a way where it's growing in its ability to withstand pressure or give in to the desire to eat or give in to the desire to drink, things like that. Like that was a big thing to a lot of monks and all of that in some orders of the church throughout history and somewhat to this day. But culturally, like broad mainstream thought right now, I would say hedonism is the flavor of the day. And so I think you're right that we don't gravitate towards discipline our body. We gravitate towards giving ourselves as much pleasure as we possibly can in every way, whether it's good for us or not. So I lift weights every... I have a six-day exercise cycle. So every six days I lift weights. And before I do that, I used to mop the floor, but it was easier to just get on a sponge and do it by hand. Mm -hmm. So I get down on my hands and knees and it's like a half hour... Oh, 20 minutes, half an hour to mop the floor. Mm -hmm. And... Sometimes in a hurry, and I just want to do it quick. Sometimes I really want to scrub and get those like places where the dirt builds up. Mm-hmm. I love the feeling of not feeling any dust between my feet and the floor. And I consistently think of scenes of monks mm-hmm. often have them cleaning the floors. There's one in particular of the movie Amazing Grace. Yep. We, before we hit record, you mentioned William Wilberforce. Yep. And there's a scene of John Newton yep. scrubbing the floor. And I think of that scene. And for listeners who don't know, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. The him and he was a slave owner who became enslaved, then became an abolitionist. Yeah, yeah. Well, became a monk and then and then fought for yeah freedom. Mm-hmm. When I do the same thing over and over and over again, and there's a measure of quality, then I can refine and refine and I learn about myself. I learn about the world. Mm-hmm. I can't get this across, but everyone who does their discipline thing knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, and it really comes down to what you value and where you align your priorities. So. There's a, a theologian in history, his name is uh, John Calvin. He, he once said that there is no work, however vile or sordid, that does not glisten before the Lord. And so he's getting up for the Christian, is no matter how menial the task, if it's done with a heart of love, of faith, 
of desire for excellence, then it shines before God. And, and that really instills as a Christian, that's how we often think about things so that whether it's doing menial tasks around the house, sweeping or mopping, like you mentioned, or if it's speaking at conferences in front of people, like how some people put that as like an ideal or whatever it may be. And in between, we believe that God is pleased by those acts. And that gives what we see as an intrinsic value to it because he's pleased by it. Because our world loves to assign value and worth based on how it prioritizes things. And I think that if you have a a worldly thought process, then you're going to ascribe your self-worth only insofar as you're doing the things that our world has deemed worthy. And that's where I think a lot of people struggle with doing small things excellent. And I really, as a Christian, want to see that you can do what is considered, quote unquote, small to the world or large, and you can do it in a way that is excellent and even admirable and worthy of being praised and emulated. So we could keep going this direction and I'm happy to. Should we pick up where we left off last time though? I'm happy to do We were talking about um, population and we had mainly, I was sharing a lot of scripture and things like that. And we want to do some follow-up conversation and questions with you. So yeah, I'd be happy to mm-hmm. transition to that if you wish. Let's go for it. Yeah. I'm trying to remember because it's actually, so as we're recording this, it's probably been about a month or two since we had that conversation. Yeah, we've had the holidays. Yeah, yeah. Holidays happened and craziness has been going on. So yeah. So one thing that I remember in that conversation though that I was trying to get across was the idea that we spent a lot of time focusing on my view that children you know, are a blessing from the Lord and that it's never a bad thing to have them or to have children and that the Bible calls us to be fruitful, multiply. So we spent a lot of our time talking about those basic parameters. So I have one question there, and then I have a second question related to our end, the end of that conversation where I think we were discussing virtue, like whether it was okay to promote something that would disagree with that. So I think that's, if I remember right, where I was wanting to follow up on. So the first one related to that, I'm just curious, like with your view of humanity and things like that, do you see large families as a threat to society or do you see families that have many children or parents that have many children as selfish? And neither of those is what comes to mind right away. Okay. And it would certainly depend on the circumstances. If someone's living in the middle of a slum and they have no hope of getting out, I'm not sure if I'm saying it right, but like I think of like the favelas in Brazil or yeah. some of the slums in India. And if you're in the middle of that, and you have a big family and you're entirely dependent on others helping you, I don't think you're going to have that happy of a family. Okay. I'm not going to stop someone. I'm not going to... I'd want to provide contraception so that they could use it if they wanted. Mm-hmm. But there, I don't think there's inherently good or bad about a big family. But I do think that in today's world, I see the world overpopulated. Mm-hmm. So there's the individual level and this uh, social at a society level. So at a society level, I wouldn't want to promote large families. Mm-hmm. Most governments do. Or these bigger families than, than is average in most places. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't want to promote that. If one or two families is, happens to be large, that's their business. But I would not want taxes to support more and more children. I wouldn't want that. That would seem to me coercive. Wait, you wouldn't want taxes to support more and more could, could you explain that a little a little further. So I was reading an article, maybe it was Sweden, I think they have a policy of for every child you have, you get more and more benefit from the government. Okay. And maybe even tax breaks as well. So yeah, I think it was a letter to the editor of some people saying we should stop this policy 
yeah, I would say we shouldn't have that policy. Oh, I'm not Swedish. But to, if the government is promoting larger families, I would vote against that. Okay. Now, I'm not for, this is an aside, but I'm not for doing things that are outside of a democratic process. So if the majority voted to continue that, I would say, well, I didn't go my way this time. I hope it goes my way next time. Mm-hmm. If we go down because through democratic processes, we pick policies that pollute and, and destroy the world or destroy lower Earth's ability to sustain life, mm-hmm. I'll go down. There's no interest of mine to, I, I know this is what you're asking, but I'm going to say it anyway. I, I'm not interested in like getting power outside of democratic process mm-hmm. to have my way because I think that I'm right. It's not that at all. Okay. So that's helpful. And so when we talk about like the idea of being selfish then, because I'm just trying to press into your worldview to see where that lines up. Because those things, you know, I find them to be important that I understand those I disagree with well. And that would be a pretty significant thing if you would see a family of, let's say, you know, stereotypical Catholic family, middle class, not living in the slums kind of thing, middle to higher class has eight to 12 kids kind of thing. You see that as a threat to the world. Anyone family is anyone family. But if there's a, if someone is promoting that, that person has a large voice and is trying to get a larger voice, uh-huh. I would think that that, I would see that as threatening. Okay. Threatening to, not threatening in a moral sense, threatening in a sense of there's so much resources to go around. And you and I have looked at the same data and we come out different ways. And yeah. my interpretation is that we're using more than what the earth can sustain, uh, artificially sustained by fossil fuels for now but they are lowering Earth's ability to sustain life. Uh-huh. So, and you mentioned that you would vote against the idea of the government supporting and you know, promoting more children. What do you think the government should be promoting then? Where, where would you want to see that money allocated? I mean, there's all sorts of things that I think government does. I mean, courts, police, firefighters, education, lots of things like that. Mm-hmm. In terms of family size, you have, there's a balance that has to be struck between supporting people who can't support themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't want them turning to crime or, I don't know, you know, drastic measures. So I don't want to say zero support. I have to look at the, the specific bill in question to say, is this promoting irresponsible growth or is this helping people who otherwise unable to help themselves? Yeah, I find it interesting. Like One of the things from a Christian perspective, but even just more of a, a conservative perspective, is that I find there to be an almost inherent inconsistency with the idea that you'd want to support people and promote their good after they're born so that they don't have to turn to drastic measures or end up killing themselves early or dying early, but that you'd want to prevent more humans who would offer more jobs, more opportunities for less of that. So I think that the scale you're operating from is assuming all the benefits of the boom we've had for many years in this country of lots of children every year. And my concern is like, so for, we've talked briefly about this, but like something like China, when they did their one child policy, they stopped doing that, I think in the late nineties. And now you see all these reports of slave labor and all these other things they are having to do to compensate for the fact that their job infrastructure is just decimated right now. And those are the concerns that I have is that you have to, you might not desire upfront to hurt other human beings or to take away from them. But if you stop or if you were to not promote having more children, healthier families, stable societies, 
the inevitable result of that is a depopulating world that requires taking advantage of other humans to sustain itself. I don't think you have any hope of some type of utopia that can be had if you're not having many uh, children. In fact, most societies that we see depopulating are having a lot of issues right now with job force and having you know, stable economies and such like that. We're seeing most countries struggling right now because of that. So we can't disconnect even like our, our thoughts and our policies we'd want from its inevitable conclusions and, where, and what it leads to. And my concerns are that the perspective that you put forward assumes that we can have the benefits of all the children and like families that are large that we've had for years and years and years in America without that thing. But that I, I would argue from my perspective, is why we've been successful. It's why we are where we are. And I think more and more we're getting away from that, which is why I think we're going to have more and more issues. Uh, but it's helpful. I do appreciate Like, I, I'm very grateful that you're, you're wanting to think through this, but you're not wanting to hurt or take away from people or not do it undemocratically. So that I can, I can resonate with. A question that comes to mind, like, so let's say you're talking to somebody who has two kids and they're in their mid-20s kind of thing. And they're thinking about wanting to have a large family. And you're having, and you know them well. They're a good friend. You know, you're you're in their house. You're talking. Would you try to change their perspective? How would you engage somebody who is thinking ahead and wanting to have a larger family? Would you see that as something that you would want to combat, or you know, speak against, or try to correct for them? You make me think of a particular friend. He and I have been very, very good friends for okay, ten or fifteen years, and mm-hmm. he now has four children. I think it's four. I don't think he's had a fifth child. And I know that there were twice, I remember him saying, by the way, I just had a baby. I was like, I know he wasn't telling me that the wife was pregnant because I wouldn't know what to say. You know, I bite my tongue and don't say like, mm-hmm. maybe not have any more. It's his business. He doesn't live in the United States. So if I ever see him again in person, I'm sure I'll be like, I'll love the kids. He knows my views and I'm not trying to hide them from him. And sometimes I talk to him and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, smaller families. And I'll, oh, no offense. That's not exactly how I would say it, but I'll mm-hmm. realize who I'm saying it to. Now, as it happens, he's one of the things that makes him such a close friend is that he is very well-spoken, very, like he knows what he's talking about. He doesn't yeah. try to pretend to know what he doesn't. And I learned a lot from him. He's one of the people that early on, on environmental issues, I would talk to him about my understanding of how the environment is going. Like I would send him data and he'd just be like, you know, if you look at it, they change the data for various reasons. And I'll say, well, yeah, you retune your instruments. Sometimes they have to change the data. And he says, yeah, if you look mm-hmm. at it, it always goes up. If it was random, it would go in both directions. And yeah. things like that would happen. I forget all the details now. And from him, I learned, I don't want to pretend like I'm the world's best listener, but I learned, listen and learn. So in his case, I try to extrapolate from that is... People have made their decisions. If I try to change them, that's probably going to backfire both in terms of it's not going to change their minds yeah. and it's probably going to strain the relationship. Yeah. And maybe they know something that I don't. Now, this sounds really nice when I say it. I, I don't know how well I practice that. Yeah, no, that's helpful. I, and I try to personalize them because you and I have had unrecorded conversations in the past where we talked about the importance of meeting people so that the labels die down. And that, that just changes how we think through these things when you put flesh and blood on it as opposed to reading statistics, you know, from some research manual. So question then following up from that, do you see, like, if you go to, if you were to go, you mentioned like the slums and like that, let's say you go to a community where you see a bunch of little ones in a housing project that are clearly not well provided for that are struggling. 
would have been better for them never to be born than to be in a situation like that? Well, so that's a hypothetical. I mean, I mean my way of framing it was if the parents had access to contraception, uh-huh. then would they have chosen to have that many kids? If they would, and they're going to love the kids. I mean, the, the main thing is what can the parents provide? And mainly in terms of love, emotional support and, and material support. Mm-hmm. So if that's there, an individual case is an individual case. It's not a policy issue for me. Okay. Once they're born, right, I want to do everything to protect and help this child have the best life that it could possibly have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's zero interest for me in lowering the population through uh, unspeakable things. Mm-hmm. But to not conceive a child in the first place, that's a totally different story for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I think last time we talked about that paper that I read where for most of human existence, like before the agricultural revolution, we were hunter-gatherers mm-hmm. and our population was stable. As far as I know, it roughly grew as the territory that we were in grew. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't a conscious choice. At least according to this paper, people just have kids. But through a combination of diet and lifestyle, women would have first conceived later in life and would stop conceiving earlier in life. The children would be spaced out more, partly because apparently they would breastfeed until like four years, five years old. Mm-hmm. And that keeps women from conceiving. And then there was a high infant mortality. So they would have five kids, two would live, and it was stable. That was I, how accurate this is. I don't know. This is one paper that I read. Mm-hmm. So... I think of a stable population as, I mean, for upwards of 100, 200,000 years, that's stable to me. A totally different lifestyle because it's hunting and gathering. But it tells me that humans can live. And, you know, I talked about Hawaii and there's lots of places where humans have lived stably. I've not really looked, but I, I don't think I've found places where a population has deliberately chosen to lower its numbers. I doubt we'd find any. Yeah. There's yeah. places where populations collapsed for various different reasons. Yeah. And I don't think anyone ever planned these things. I guess maybe shakers, some places that have not sex as part of their uh, premises. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're choosing to lower the population. Yeah. And I'm just speculating here. I, you know, that's helpful. Yeah. And I would say, from my worldview, the reason that no civilization has done that and succeeded is one, it's doomed to failure if it does. Because natural law, the idea of having things written into human consciousness that I would say as a Christian are stemming from our creation by God who's made us to be fruitful and to multiply. Like that's part and parcel of what it is to survive and to live as humans is to have other human beings. Like it's intrinsic to our nature. It's the idea of why why we protect little ones and why you, you I think you even are mentioning well, like the idea of you want to see parents committed to loving for their children, loving their children and, and providing for them and, and nurturing them. And I think it's, what's interesting is so much of our worldview is coming out, you know, in these very basic conversations you and I have, you know, mm-hmm. even just some of the the little things you mentioned, like when you mentioned the the other tribes that were living for, you know, 100,000 to 200,000 years. As a young earth creationist, I see the earth is six to 10,000 years old. So I'm hearing you say these things and I'm like, he's out to lunch, you know, when he says these things. Mm -hmm. So it's just fascinating how much, you know, the way that we're understanding reality, the way we're framing reality is significant in these. And, And what it comes down to is having a conversation and putting forward what we find to be the most compelling for humanity. I'm convinced that the idea that 
promoting less humanity is destructive and just against the very basic premise of what it is to be human. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Last time I remember thinking while you were talking, I think that we share a similar mission and have different strategies within that mission, that we both want human flourishing. And I want as many people as we can, because mm-hmm. I don't think that there's good without people. That's a, a yeah. Let's go to another galaxy. There's some planet there. There might be life on that planet. Mm-hmm. I don't really care one way or another of <laughs> how how it does. Yeah. It's, it's our if there's conscious beings on there. Okay, that's another story. Mm-hmm. Especially if they can feel pain and suffer. But as far as I know, it's us. Yeah. And therefore, I want humans to enjoy all of this gift and. If I look at populations of non-humans mm-hmm. in some natural setting, we can look at the patterns. We can see that there's one in my book that I'll probably put in my book of some island off of Alaska. Mm-hmm. I've seen pictures of it in the summer. It looks really like stunningly beautiful. And in the winter, it's like minus 70 degrees with 70 mile per hour winds. And it's so in World War II, the Navy, I think, set up a radar station there. Mm-hmm. And they sent a bunch of guys to you know, do whatever they did. And they knew that they would be there for a while. Did I tell this before? I think we've talked briefly, maybe an unrecorded conversation, but this is ringing some bells. Yeah. Okay, stop me if I'm repeating something. So they sent some guys there and they knew that they might not be able to resupply them. So they also stuck a bunch of reindeer on this island. So the island is roughly the size of Manhattan, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And in the end, they, you know, if you need food, hunt the reindeer. Mm-hmm. So the war ends, they come home. The reindeer, they just leave there. And apparently, reindeer are fine in that weather. Yeah. And it turns out that the food supply there for the reindeer is incredible. So the reindeer grow like crazy. So they dropped off a couple dozen. And then a few years later, there's like thousands. And a few years later, there's more thousands. Mm-hmm. And then a few years later, all of them are gone except like 20. And there's like carcasses all over the place because they studied the carcasses and there's like no fat left on them. They all died of hunger. Yeah. And there was of the, the couple that were left at the end, there was one male and that male was sterile. And so when they died, this population, it was in Eden for them. And they went extinct on that island. Okay, if we look at the patterns of populations, we can tell conditions when a population of non-humans is going to die. And if we look at humans, we can see the similar patterns. I'm like, well, the math seems to be consistent and it worked there. If it's going to happen here, I want to change the situation so that that outcome doesn't happen. I want humans to live. I know that there's some people out there who are like antinatalists and think the world would be better off without humans. I don't align myself with them at all. I read their stuff because I'm kind of curious, but I don't think it makes sense. Yeah. But the patterns seem clear that if we continue as we're doing, the population will collapse. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to work against. If we want to have as many humans as grains of sand on the beach and stars in the sky, we have to not overtax the resources. And I'm not saying this in numerically, that is to say just what I feel like 
the numbers would be. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, there's a book called Limits to Growth, which is where I feel like has the most effective way of approaching it. Mm-hmm. It didn't make strict predictions, although everyone misreads it to think that it did. But it found certain patterns of overshoot and collapse that happen when you have populations growing, when you have non-renewable resources, as well as renewable resources that become non-renewable, like fish in the ocean, if they can't find each other to mate, they become mm-hmm. non-renewable. Yeah. And these patterns, they seem too clear in many areas that if they happen with humans, we could see a huge population collapse, which is the last thing that I want. And even if it just starts, I see conflict over resources becoming violent conflicts, leading to violent wars that could escalate outside of anyone's control. This is what I want to prevent. Yeah, it's interesting because I see that very thing happening, the violent response to not having enough by following your strategy, because we won't have the infrastructures in place to avoid the limitations because we haven't repopulated in enough of a rate. Like I read the statistics the other day, the Census Bureau came out and we had a 0.01% growth in America last year is the lowest we've had since 1776, as far as I think they had said, if I remember correctly. That's terrifying to me in terms of the trajectory of where we're going. So I see that as actually the means by which we end up in the violent arms race for whatever's left when we don't repopulate. So it's interesting. Like I do think you're right to say we both want human flourishing. I don't want to see humans having to turn violent against each other to survive. Mm-hmm. So we can agree on that. But yeah, we have a completely different way of what we see as the means by which we achieve that flourishing. And your view of flourishing that you're putting forward is flowing from your understanding and your interpretation of you know, the scientific data and some of the analysis you're putting together. And what I'm putting forward, I believe, is coming from the God of the world who created the world and spoke and has told us how to live. And the thing that I would say, the reason why I find that not only more compelling, but why I want to call people to that following the God of the Bible is that that hasn't changed. That call, that mandate, the way it works has not changed. And in many ways, the Bible has shaped the society that we live in today deeply and how we think through these things. The data that you're putting forward has changed immensely over time. There's been corrections, there's been warnings of heat, then there's warnings of freeze again, then there's one. It's constantly shifting and shaping. And I appreciate that you have the intellectual humility to say, that your the reindeer example and stuff is more observational. Like you're trying to make, I think, a, a healthy point of the reality that if you completely overfill a spot, eventually you're going to run out of resources. And I think that's a, a basic premise I'd agree with. The pushback that I would have, and the reason I'll find it compelling in terms of the conversation we're having, is that we're not reindeer. You know, mm-hmm. we're endowed with an intellectual capacity that is far superior to reindeer. That we can actually go create resources just like those reindeer didn't just show up there. We brought them there and then left them. Look, we have the ability to move. We have the ability to adapt, to cultivate in ways that they don't. And so my concern is not about us running out of resources in that way because of the way that humans are able to create and to bring about resources from the world that God has made. In accordance with, as we talked about before, in the early parts of scripture, we see that God tells us that the land is teeming with life and that humans are to take dominion of it and use it for fruitful growth and for prosperity. So yeah, I think it's just interesting that the way we're coming at this, we're both looking at data. We're both, but the question is which data is trustworthy, which data will stand up and which data provides the most compelling case 
to live by. And I see scripture as that foundation that I see as good for society, as stable for society, and as unchanging for society. Now, I, I want to respond to that. Before we hit record, this is painful for me to say, but we're a little over the time that we said that we had. Should we pick up next time and leave this as a cliffhanger forever? And it's like, where are they going to go next? <laughs> yeah, I would love that. Because I, I, and again, I don't say these things I do to end this conversation at all. I'm happy to keep chatting through these things. And I've been learning from you and, and sharpening and growing as we've had them. So I really appreciate this. And yeah, I would love to keep it going. So Great. Yeah. For the process, when my first company, Submedia, was on the verge of bankruptcy, mm-hmm. there was the other co-founder and me. And we both saw the situation and we both saw different ways of getting out of it. There was a big struggle because both of us felt if we do the other one's thing, that will end it. Yep. We have to do my thing. Each of us thought, check with him. But I, you know, one of my memories was that if we do it his way, even a little bit, we could be over. And he might be thinking the same thing. And one of my big lessons from that was not to feel so frantic and drastic and shrill or Mm -hmm. what's what I'm looking for. Uh, There's almost an insecurity, right? Like if I give up anything here, then everything I've said is for naught, right? Insecurity is a good word. I don't like feeling insecure. So I will do what I can, even if I subconsciously feel it, to protect myself. Yep. And then I do things that I regret later. And that was a big lesson, which there were calm voices in that storm and to learn from them. Yep. I appreciate it. But yeah, I'd love to pick this up. We'll definitely want to keep in mind to give you the first word next time to follow up with what I put forward as a competing vision of the goods, we can call it, and what your response to that would be. That'd be great. Cool. Well, thanks again, Michael, and talk to you again soon. Yep, it sounds great. Talk to you later. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.